Hi, this is Pastor Curtis Crawford welcoming you to our podcast. At Revive Outreach Church, we're striving to revive an awareness of Christ in our communities through Christ-centered compassion, service, and evangelism. You can learn more about us online at www.reviveoc.org or on Facebook at facebook.com slash church. We hope that you enjoy this message and God bless. Welcome again to the house of the Lord this morning. We're going to continue our study on the book of Philippians today. We're going to be looking at chapter 3 today. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. And finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me. To write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of mutilation. For you are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. You may be seated this morning. Please keep your Bibles out as we progress through chapter 3 today. Today we're going to switch gears from talking about unity and serving others and, um, you know, uh, serving Christ without complaining So now Paul is going to talk here in chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. He's going to talk about false teachers, people that are preaching a different gospel, people that are teaching a different gospel than what Paul had originally given to them. Specifically, he's talking about a sect of Jews that became known as Judaizers. What those Jews were are Jews who were trying to tell Gentiles that not only do they need Jesus to be saved, but they also needed to be circumcised and obey the law. Uh, It was a very dangerous sect. Uh, They were trying to force uh, uh, Gentiles uh, to obey uh, Old Testament law, force them and put the focus not on the death and the resurrection and the sacrifice made by Christ on Calvary, but instead upon man uh, uh, rituals that man performed. Now, don't get me wrong. Circumcision was important uh, when the, with the Mosaic law. Uh, and, and the law was important, as Paul said in the book of Romans, though. Uh, the law was meant to show us just how far off we are from God's standard. It can't save us. It can't help us. There's nothing the law could do us except point us to Christ, right? Uh, so we can never be obedient enough to the law, no matter what anybody says, that you and I could be saved. Because if you fail in one point of the law, you fail in all points of the law. In addition to that, circumcision was a physical outward expression that the children of Israel belonged to God. It, it was a, a symbol that they were different than everybody else around them, that they belonged to God. They were the children of Abraham and they were his. Uh, For you and I as Christians, Paul teaches us again in the book of Romans, that circumcision, uh, we don't have to be circumcised in the flesh, but we are to be circumcised in spirit. What does that mean? 
It means that all of the sin and death that uh, is inside of us is cut away. When we accept Christ as Lord and Savior, all of that stuff that's not of Christ is cut away, circumcised, removed, and we are now spiritual children of Abraham. So God is, Paul says that all physical children of Abraham aren't necessarily all of Abraham's children. And in fact, there are children of Abraham physically who are not actually his children spiritually. And there are children of Abraham that are not physical, physically his children, but are spiritually his children. And thank goodness for you and I, that includes us, right? If you and I know Christ as Lord and Savior and have called upon his name and made him Lord of our life, and uh, then uh, we belong to him. And we are now also spiritual children of Abraham, no physical circumcision required uh, and no amount of obedience to the law necessary because we're saved by grace and grace alone. It is a gift of God, as Paul said, lest anyone should boast. All right. So as we start out here in verse one, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. So we'll stop here for just a second to, to remind each of us that we are to rejoice in the Lord, that the Lord is to be the uh, center, the foundation of our joy. Because God will never change. The Lord will never change. Christ will never change. God will never change. So therefore, our joy is centered in Him. And as we've discussed many times, even here in the study of Philippians, our God never fails us. He never changes. Uh, changes. Uh, he will always be there. He will love us always the same as he's always loved us, right? And it's because he loves us and he cares for us, he has our best interests at heart, then therefore our joy needs to be centered upon him. Because listen, joy is not based on feelings or circumstance. Our world has mixed up joy with happiness. Joy is not a feeling. Joy is a state of mind. Happiness, sadness, those are feelings, right? Happiness is fleeting. Sadness is fleeting. One moment you can be happy, the next moment you can be sad. But something that should never change in a believer's life is our joy. We always have joy. Why? Because our joy is rooted in Christ who never fails who loves us and has our best interests at heart. So therefore, no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what pain or suffering we see or experience, we know that Christ loves us and all things work out to the good of those who are called according to his purpose, right? He has a plan for us, a plan for our lives to make us in the image of his son, right? And to draw us closer to him, to prepare us, to make us more like his son and to prepare us to spend eternity with him. That's his plan for us. And so no matter what we're facing, we can have joy knowing that our God is sovereign in control and the one who is sovereign and in control knows your name, the very numbers of hair that are upon your head. He knew you according to Psalms 139 before you were ever formed and your mother's womb. He had your days fashioned before you ever took your first breath. He knew your name before your parents knew your name, right? He knew your his plans for you before you had any plans for yourself. He knew everything about you, yet he chose you, called you, and loved you anyways. 
I don't know about you, that excites me and that gives me a reason to rejoice and my joy is in him. If I place my joy in temporal things in this world, they will fail me, they will pass away, it will crumble, they will disintegrate and I will be left alone and uh, uh, worried about the future and tomorrow. The world and material things will let us down, but God will never let us down. As Christians, we can always have joy. And it's what separates us from the rest of the world. Because our joy is on an, a, a solid rock that never changes. Continuing on with verse 1. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. What Paul is about to tell the Philippians here in chapter 3, he had already told them before. Right? Multiple times. He had already told them, watch out for leaders or false teachers or false preachers. Right? He says, if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to what I've preached, uh, what you've heard, he also said in another place, even if me, if I came back to you and preached a different gospel, right? Uh, don't believe it. Right? That was the message that he had for those churches. If anyone preaches a different gospel, don't believe it. Right? Uh, and so he uh, says to them, it is important that I drill this into your head. One, because these people who were trying to force Gentiles to proselytize and become Jewish, right? To be circumcised, to obey the law, to participate in the Old Testament rites and rituals. They were wrong and heretics. And they were a stumbling block and a hindrance to the Gentile believers. Even Peter got caught up in this. Right? Uh, Peter uh, had a delegation from uh, uh, Jews in Jerusalem that came and, and ate with him. And when he was eating with them, uh, he refused, uh, would not go eat in the house of Gentiles because he was afraid they would judge him. Peter got caught up, unfortunately, in this, this Jewish attitude towards Gentiles and how they needed to behave and carry themselves and Paul had to rebuke him and say, Peter, how dare you? You know better, right? So these, their influence was great, this sect of Jews and their influence. And so Paul is saying, be wary of them. First, he calls them in verse two, dogs. Now, man, he's about to go after them. And let me tell you, the words I'm about to read to you, uh, he don't mess around. Right? Uh, he's about to tell these Jews, turn them upside down because everything they believed in themselves, he's about to tell them is not true. First, he says, beware of dogs. The Greek word translated dogs there was a term of derision that the Jews used of Gentiles. At the early uh, first century, uh, dogs ran wild uh, throughout in packs. And they were scavengers, and they were dirty, and they were nasty, and they were stinky, and they carried disease, right? And they were, they were gross. Uh, and so they were, they were out there scavenging and ravaging, right? Uh, and they were dirty. And so uh, when the Jews called Gentiles dogs, it was a term of derision, right? They were like, you are awful, awful, dirty, nasty people. But Paul turns it around, and he is actually causing these Judaizers... He's calling them dogs. 
He's using the same term that they used of Gentiles on them because what he's saying here, it's not your nationality. It's not your race. It's right. None of that is what has made you a dog. What makes you a dog is that you're evil. You're perverse. You're presenting a gospel that's not true. And you are preying upon babes in Christ and trying to destroy their faith. That's what makes you a dog. Right? False teachers, false prophets are disgusting, despicable, and they are dogs. Preying upon the weak. Why? To take care of themselves, to promote themselves, to bring glory to themselves, to meet some strange desire to have significance and a following and influence. Listen, all of us want influence. Who doesn't want influence? Even people who say they don't want influence, want influence. They want people to love them. They want people to care about them. They want people to care about their opinions. They want people to care about what they have to say. They not be, maybe not be out in the world. Uh, we may not be out there, you know, touting all that and wanting influence. But within our homes, we want to influence parents. You want to influence your children. Right? We want influence. And many times there are, there are people who want influence so bad that they will do anything to get it. And within the church, that is true. They will combat the pastor. They will combat teachers. They will combat the preachers within the body of Christ because they are trying to get influence. And so they need to assert that influence or assert false doctrine. They need to uh, whisper something that sounds good to get people's attention, or they need to try to uh, say, put conditions on salvation so that people can only get the message from them and nobody else. They got the key to salvation, that extra step that's not in the gospel that you need to be saved or, or that you need to have prosperity. Uh-oh. Right? Uh, they, they want to prey upon our desire to be successful and to have fulfillment. And so instead of preaching that our fulfillment and our success comes from Christ, they start preaching things like uh, if you have faith enough, you can get a new Cadillac. And if you have faith enough, you can get a mansion. And if you have faith enough, listen, let me tell you something. God will bless us according to his riches and glory, according to his will and purpose. I cannot blackmail God. I can't speak into existence something that God has not already willed. Let me just tell you. Now, some people will say, well, pastor, uh, that, that stinks, right? I, I, well, I should be able to speak things into existence. Here's the thing. I actually get excited because it lets me know if I am speaking according to God's will, I'll never be wrong. We got too many prophets out there declaring the word of the Lord and thus say of the Lord that turn out being wrong because they're not speaking according to the will of God. They're dogs trying to get a following. When God declares that something's going to happen, the enemy cannot stop it. And he will not prophesy things that will not come to pass. If a prophet prophesies something that does not happen, they are a liar and a false prophet. Bottom line. And if a, but if someone who is speaking and praying according to the will of God and purity and integrity, pure motives, not trying to get a following, not trying to have influence, that's different. And that will impact the kingdom of God. You got a lot of hurt Christians running around because someone spoke a word over them that did not happen. We cause harm 
When we get out of the will of God and we declare things that are not God's, why? Because we're trying down deep inside to be something, to show influence, to influence and get a following. That is the facts. We want to be heard. And if that means saying, thus saith the Lord, some people will do it. And those people are dogs. Scavenging, trying to benefit themselves, running around without true purpose, under nobody's authority or control. Oh my, I don't know why I'm preaching on this this morning. I stop here. They are running under no one's authority or control. The more they claim that they are coming in Christ's name, the more it becomes obvious that they are not his. Scrambling, scrounging like dogs with no master. Beware of evil workers. Another shot at them. Why? Because these Jews were very proud of their works. They believed that they had righteous works, and those righteous works would lead to salvation. But what Paul tells them is, he takes a stacks them right in the knees. Pow! Uh, you're evil workers. They're evil workers. You think that you're good because of your righteous works? One, no one is righteous. No, not one. Two, you'll never be perfect or can be obedient to the law enough. So your works are not righteous. And with these folks, they were many times hypocrites that held people to a standard that they themselves did not even uphold, right? Held people to a legal standard that they weren't even willing to hold themselves to in private or, you know what I mean? They were hypocrites and their works didn't mean anything. Even if they were filled with good works or righteous works, uh, if they were doing so with an ulterior motive to simply be saved, they were wrong. And so he says... Uh, your uh, beware of evil workers. And then he says, finally, with the exclamation point, beware of mutilation. One of the key points of these Judaizers is they were trying to convince Gentiles that they had to be circumcised physically. And the Greek word that Paul uses here for mutilation is very interesting because typically the Greek word for circumcision means to cut away and around, to cut around. However, the word Paul uses here for mutilation means to cut off. So the Greek word for circumcision means to cut around. I won't get into gory details of what circumcision is, but right to remove what's necessary, uh, unnecessary. This word says, cut it off, right? And what it was is it was used to talk about pagans who would... Uh, cut themselves and do realistic, ritualistic acts of maiming themselves and hurting themselves uh, to try to, some weird uh, ritual to get their false God's attention. The best example of this is Elijah, right? And the prophets of Baal, when they would cut themselves and cry and make themselves bleed and mutilate their bodies. And that was disgusting and forbidden by God. God said, this is awful. Don't participate in it. Don't, I don't want any of that near you. Get rid of it. And so Paul is saying that is the, these Jewish Judaizers who are saying Gentiles have to be circumcised. Uh, they are what they're doing is they're promoting mutilation because that outward act is nothing more than uh, it doesn't mean anything. It has no spiritual significance because there's no change of heart. 
You might as well be cutting your arms. You might as well be cutting it off. I mean, right? It serves no purpose and it is disgusting to God. Again, all of these three things would have just hit hard with those Judaizers because this is what their three things of influence over the Gentile believers. Right? They had, and they prided themselves. And Paul, he just goes right after them. And he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't talk nice about them. He doesn't try to spare their feelings. He goes right for the, right for the jugular, right? He knew what he was saying. And he was, because it was important to him for these Jew, or for these Gentiles and for this church to know that what they were preaching was false and to avoid it at all costs. Folks, we have got to keep our eyes and our ears spiritually attuned so that we are not deceived by a world that is promoting a gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, amending things to it, changing things uh, to, to the gospel uh, that, that is wrong. Uh, they do so to, for control, for influence, to tickle people's ears, right? All of those things. That is not... Anyone who does that, uh, they are a false teacher and a false prophet. We have to be seeking God in prayer and not get caught up and be deceived by those wolves in sheep clothing. He says in verse three, for we are the circumcision, as I stated earlier. Uh, we are, he's saying, me, a Jew, you guys as Gentiles, we are the circumcision, maybe not physically, but we are spiritually circumcised, and thus we are children of Abraham. Being spiritually circumcised is way more important over being physically circumcised. In fact, it takes precedence, and so physical circumcision is no longer required to make you a child of Abraham. Uh, that uh, spiritual circumcision of the heart makes us a children of Abraham. Who what? Who worship God in the spirit. If you'll recall, Jesus said there's coming a time to the Samaritan woman. What? There's coming a time when you won't worship them here in Samaria, you know, in your temple, and you won't worship them. The Jews won't worship them in Jerusalem in their temple. There's coming a time where you can worship God anywhere. You'll worship him in spirit and in truth. That word spirit here would be better not capitalized because he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the man's soul and spirit inside of him saying that it is not the outward expression. It's not where you do it, but true worshiping of God is an inward reality that happens because of our love and our appreciation for who he is. Respect and all for him. It originates from the spirit or, or inside of us. So it doesn't matter if you lift your hands, if you try to speak in tongues, if you dance, if you run, if the inward reality does not match what is happening on the outside. We are not worshiping God in spirit. We are doing so in a ritualistic manner. And that is not what worship is about. Right? If, if you're lifting your hands, if I'm lifting my hands and I'm, and I'm doing all of these outward things, but inside I truly am not serving God, loving God, honoring God, I'm not worshiping him. So we as believers, we worship him in spirit. That means the internal worship 
The external matches that it starts internally. That's why I can worship anywhere. I don't have to be in a temple performing ritualistic worship. I don't have to be in a church to worship. I could worship at home. I am the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me. I am the church, right? I carry God with me. And if I truly love him and have a relationship with him, I can worship him anywhere because it is an attitude of what's inside of us. It is a heart. It is who we are. When Christ saved us and set us free. And so we can worship anytime, anywhere. Because it is inside of us. That spirit of worship. It doesn't matter where. It's inside of us. That's why someone who is quiet and doesn't lift their hands can be worshiping as much as that outward vocal person who is lifting their hands and hollers. We cannot judge people for their worship. That is between them and God. Right? That is between them and God. You can't, we can't, uh, as uh, you know, uh, leaders, look out and say, assume someone is not worshiping because they simply have their eye closed and their head bowed, right? Or they're not lifting your hands up high enough. And we also can't assume somebody is worshiping because they're out in the aisle dancing, right? right? It's about that internal reality. Worship is an intimate thing between us and God. So we worship God in spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. Our hope is in Christ. We joy in the fact that he died upon the cross, that he rose from the dead, right? Forget about physical circumcision. Forget about obedience to the law. Forget about all this junk they're telling you. Where's your joy? Your joy is in Christ Jesus. We rejoice in him because of what he did on Calvary. The fact that he paid the price that we're all sin, that we all fall short, right? Uh, right? That, that, that we're all guilty. There, none of us are righteous, but Christ came and died upon the cross and uh, so that you and I could be set free, rose again, right? So we can live again and be resurrected and live forever in his presence, right? Someday. And so we, we joy in that. Forget about all the ritualistic things they're telling you. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again and you and I could be saved. Right, it's like uh, they were all uh, getting excited uh, uh, and saying, hey, we cast out demons and we healed the sick and we did all these things. And Jesus said, listen, uh, don't rejoice because the demons are subject to you, but rejoice because your name is written and the Lamb's book of life. That's why we rejoice in. Now, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And someday he's going to take me by my hand and say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Amen. That's what it's all about. And I have no, have no confidence in the flesh. Again, nothing of regarding our salvation through Christ is based in who we are. I don't know about you, but that gives me joy. I'm so happy that my salvation is not based on me, not based on my actions, not based on my choices, not based on all the mistakes that I make, right? Not just made, but continue to make, right? Uh, my obedience to the law. Thank the Lord in heaven that he uh, had mercy on me and showed grace upon me so that it's not at all based on what I can do, but on who he is. So I have no confidence in what my flesh or what I could do, but my confidence 
is in Christ. And thank goodness, because I got to tell you, sometimes I got a strong will and sometimes I got a weak will, right? Sometimes I got it all together and sometimes I'm falling apart. You know what I'm saying right there? Thank goodness salvation isn't based on me, but in who Christ is. And what Paul is going to do now is he's going to go again after these Jews, uh, these Judaizers who are talking about their how because they're so righteous and obedient to the law and because they are circumcised and they've done all of these ritualistic things that, that they are saying that, that anyone, everyone has to do to be saved. Paul is about to combat that. Watch, because what was Paul's message? Salvation is by grace alone, which was contrary to what the Jews were teaching. All right, so he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh. So he's saying, look, if anyone should have confidence in the flesh, it should be me. Right? Uh, because... Look at my qualifications if you look at my flesh. He says, I more so. I was circumcised the eighth day. Paul wasn't circumcised after the fact. He wasn't proselytized. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law and the religious rules. And so he was circumcised exactly when he was supposed to be circumcised. Not all those Jews and not all you could say it. Uh, of the stock of Israel, meaning Paul was a pure lineage. He could trace it all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? He could trace it. Many of the other Jews had a money lineage. They weren't all of that stock, right? They, 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 had, uh, uh, they intermarried and they weren't, couldn't trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. So he was... Uh, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. There were two tribes that did not go apostate uh, at first. The ten tribes in the north all went crazy, rebelled, and God wiped out and took them into captivity long before the two tribes in the south. Benjamin was one of those tribes. Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin that held out longer and, and right was more dedicated to serve God longer than, than the other ten tribes uh, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, right? Uh, Paul, uh, he, uh, even though he knew it wasn't required, but even in places uh, where there weren't Hebrew or Jews, he still uh, acted according to his uh, Jewish beliefs. Why? Because he did not want to have anyone to have alt against him. No one could question his commitment to Christ or his commitment to his Jewish heritage. So he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, he was a Jew all the time, not just when it was convenient. And he was a Christian all the time, not just when it was convenient, but, but, but he was a Jew all the time. Concerning the law, he says, I'm a Pharisee. What does that mean? The Pharisees were a religious sect. They were the most educated uh, of the Jewish people. Uh, they started training when they were children and they uh, grew up. Most likely Paul was from a family or a lineage of Pharisees. Most likely, definitely his dad was. He studied under one of the most elite Pharisees at that time, Gamaliel, right? Who was, uh, you could read about in Acts, was a wise uh, a leader. Uh, and so Paul was a Pharisee uh, to boot, right? So these other Jews couldn't claim to be Pharisees. 
Right? So if they were talking about uh, works righteousness, right? If they're talking about obedience to the law, knowing the law, doing all the thing the law says, well, Paul had him trump because he was a Pharisee. He then says, concerning zeal, because listen, to Jewish believers, zeal was critical. So to Jews, uh, Jewish believers, but to Jews in general, especially Jews who were holding on to that Old Testament way of doing things, the old law, the Mosaic law, they were, a part of that was being incredibly zealous, right? Which was an excuse that they were using to tell Gentiles they had to be circumcised, right? And had to be, obey the law to be saved. Paul says, you want to talk about zeal? How about when Jesus seemed to be a threat to me, to what we believed and how I was raised and what I was taught? Uh, I had some zeal because I went out. I started rounding them up, putting them in jail, having them executed, witnessing their executions, supporting their executions. Listen, he had their land forfeited and taken away from them. Not only did he do it in Jerusalem in that area, but he actually said, let me go out from here. There's some Christians down in Damascus. Uh, let me go get them too. Like, if you want to talk about zeal, none of you are zealous like I was zealous for our heritage, right? I went, and if anyone was, I felt like attacking it, I went after him. So he said, zeal isn't an excuse. I was zealous, persecuting the church and concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul is saying that as much as possible compared to them, he kept the law. Compared to them, uh, he was perfect compared to them. Now, he wasn't perfect, but he kept the law better than they kept the law. He was obedient to the law more than they were obedient to the law. And so, therefore, what he's saying to his readers is if they come to you with this pedigree of why you should listen to them, right, and why they are right, let me tell you something. You look at all this that I did, all this that I am based on my heritage and how I was raised, right, and how I carried myself and lived my life, yet I am telling you that all of that is forfeit and doesn't matter when it comes to salvation in Christ. And none of that matters. In fact, he goes here to say, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Those uh, gain and loss are financial accounting terms. Just like you would record a loss in your checkbook or a gain in your checkbook and a, a write a positive of a draw and a deposit. What Paul is saying is, there's all of those things that were supposed to be prized stock, right? That were supposed to be so important. I count them as lost. All those things that were supposed to be for my gain, they are useless. That currency won't spend here. Right. Uh, so I count it as lost. All of that stuff doesn't matter. My pedigree, none of that matters. I count it as lost. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. What he's saying is, is I am willing to forego, get rid of, not care about all of that pedigree and all of that stuff that is so important to the flesh to give it all up and count it as lost and not uh, tout it, right? Not rely on it, not count on it, not promote it. Why? For the knowledge of Christ. In the Greek word he uses that's translated knowledge here, it's not simply knowing about God or knowing about Christ, but it is an intimate relationship with him, right? There is a difference between knowing about Jesus 
and knowing Jesus. And Paul is saying, I'm willing to give up all that I was and all that I had. Listen to me this morning. I'm willing to give up all of that so that I can know Christ, know him, know who he is, have a relationship with him. That is more important than all that I accumulated over my lifetime. He gave up everything to know Christ. He counted all of that loss. Oh my goodness, this morning, how many of us have counted lost that which has no tangi- uh, no eternal value? To say, God, the things that have no eternal value, I'm willing to let go of, not stake my happiness on, my reputation on, not willing to stake anything on that, but I am uh, holding tight to you, willing to count it as loss so that I can know you, have a relationship with you. I'm willing to give up my car, my house, my job, my money, if it meant knowing you. Uh Oh, uh oh, have it meant having a relationship with you? I am willing to give up those things. It may hurt, but I'm willing so I can know you. See, the problem is, is that for these Judaizers, all of those things were getting in the way of true salvation. We never want anything to get in our way of true salvation and having a relationship with Christ. And if it is, we need to get rid of it. Paul was willing to cast aside all of that baggage of who he was. So he needed, uh, before his relationship in Christ. So it wasn't a stumbling block to him. Now we know that didn't happen overnight. Well, it kind of did, but it took a dramatic act of God to make it happen. Right? But... He didn't allow those things to get in the way of knowing Christ. And no matter how great the accomplishments were, he was willing to give it up for Christ. To go and be beaten and hated and despised and stoned and running out of town. All of that stuff for Christ. He would have been praised by the Jews, honored by the Jews because of his pedigree. He gave it all away so he could know Christ. Anything in our lives that we prevent us from knowing Christ, we need to cast it aside. Jesus went so far as to say, if your arm causes you to sin or your body part causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, pluck them out. What he's saying there is there's nothing on this earth that's worth losing out on a relationship with God. Nothing. Nothing on this planet that is worth losing or not having a relationship with God. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That means literally trash. In fact, it was also used to talk about manure. Mm -hmm. Rubbish. So he counted all of that stuff, which in the eyes of the Jews was honoring an elite. He counted it as no better than manure to be thrown out. Manure, rubbish, trash of no value. Right? 
You ever seen, there's, there's people that like to go dumpster diving at the, at the dump. There's a, I don't know if they have it anymore, but I know as a kid, they definitely had it where I grew up. They had a too good to waste place where people would take things that uh, they just didn't need anymore or want anymore. And they would go take it and rather than throw it in the dump pile, they'd put it in the too good to waste place. And so it would be, you know, furniture or appliances, you know, that they had maybe upgraded, but it was stuff that still worked and was still usable. And so people would be there to just take that as fast as they could because it was still good stuff, right? But to the person who was giving it up, it was trash. The world sees it as good, usable. Why are you throwing this away? I'll take it home and use it. Where to that person, it was garbage, Right? You and I are called upon, right, to get rid of anything, no matter how valuable the world thinks it is, if it keeps us from knowing Christ. Get rid of it. Cut it out. It's rubbish. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having any, and not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He knew his righteousness through the law was as, as useless, even in his uh, pedigree and his uh, past and, and what he had been to be obedient to it and all of his training. His righteousness was still dirty rags compared to the righteousness that was offered by Christ. And without Christ's righteousness, there was no salvation. And without salvation, there was no knowing God, knowing Christ, having a relationship with him. And so he says, I'll cast all that works that I've done. I'll cast all that aside, uh, that false, dirty righteousness that I tried to clothe myself in, and I will gladly accept the righteousness freely given by God, that pure righteousness uh, that I can never, uh, never produce myself. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may have a re relationship with him, and not just that, but I know that someday I'm going to be raised again. The power of his resurrection. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And what an example to the whole world, to all the earth, even to this day, that he rose again after being dead for three whole days. And because he rose again, you and I someday, if we die on this earth, will raise again. We will be resurrected. Uh, our body will be glorified and we will spend eternity with him. And the fellowship of his sufferings be conformed to his death. So not only do I want a, a glory in his resurrection and the power of his resurrection, but also to have fellowship with the suffering. As I've stated earlier, I don't like to suffer. I'm sure you don't like to suffer but we're to count it all joy when you and I suffer trials and tribulations. And when you and I are uh, being persecuted, we are to count it as joy. It's, it should be an honor when, when uh, first uh, Peter, and I believe it was John, were taken prisoner and they were beaten in Acts chapter four, I think it is. Uh, when they were done getting beaten and being scolded, they went home and instead of saying, woe is me, I'm not gonna talk about this Jesus anymore. They said, thank you God that we were counted worthy to suffer for your name's sake. Oh my goodness. 
How many of us, if we lost our job tomorrow uh, because of the cause of Christ, would go home and say, Jesus, thank you so much that I lost my job and maybe even my house and my car, right, uh, for the cause of Jesus Christ. I don't think there's a one of us that would probably do that. But that's what these guys did. They, they gloried in the sufferings of Christ because he suffered. They were willing to suffer and not just suffer, but to be grateful for the suffering. My goodness. Grateful for the suffering because they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. We don't know what suffering for Christ is in the United States of America. Amen. None of us. It's coming though. Be ready. It's already started. Being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, that ultimate hope, that he will be raised from the dead and spend eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. Paul counted his relationship with God more important than anything else. More important than anything else. And you and I must do the same. We must be willing to elevate our relationship with God above everything else that competes with it in our lives. Because the truth of the matter is someday there are going to people that be people that stand before God that say, I cast out demons in your name. I healed the sick in your name. I performed miracles and did all of these things in your name. I taught Sunday school. I taught children's church. I taught Bible studies. I preached sermons every Sunday for 10 years. I did all of these things. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Again, that word knew means an intimate relationship with God. And that is scary that there are people who think they know God, but he doesn't know them. Nothing is more important than our relationship with Christ. Nothing. And anything that we are putting in front of him needs to be removed. And I have to tell you, I wish I could stand before you and say that uh, I have not, that I have always made my relationship with Christ a priority. And I cannot say that. I cannot tell you today that every single day I walk and, and make my relationship with Christ a priority. I get drowned out and I get distracted by things of this world just like anybody else. But I hope this message is challenging to us that A, we will chase God and not false prophets who tickle our ears. Amen. That I will chase God and, and not be limited by my wealth and my material possessions and what I have and used to have, that I will uh, chase him, to know him, to have a relationship with him above all those things. Amen. Don't be like the rich man. I don't want to be like the rich man who went to Jesus and said, how can I be saved? And he said, Jesus said, well, obey the commandments, right? And the rich man said, well, I do. I've obeyed those since I was a kid. And what else do I need to do? And Jesus said, go and sell all you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the rich man went away sad because he was very wealthy. He made a decision to not follow Christ because of his money. He went there to get a pat on the head. Believe it or not, I believe his motivation was for Jesus to say, good boy, 
you got it all together. You obeyed the commands, you're going to be saved. Instead, he went away sad when Jesus said, nope, it's more than that. It's about a relationship with me, following me. Oh my goodness, that's a sermon right there. And I know I've been long-winded, but I really feel like this is an important message for all of us today. Let's be challenged by God's word that it will change us in our everyday lives. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you enjoyed it and were blessed by it. Each month we have people from all over the world who listen to the messages made available. If you've been blessed by this ministry, would you consider making a donation of any amount to help support us as we continue to reach a loss for Christ? Donations can be made online at www.reviveoc.org or by check at Revive Outreach Church, 411 Chatham Heights Road, Suite 101, Fredericksburg, Virginia, 224. Thank you for your prayers and your continued support. May God richly bless you.